Well, good morning, church family. Well, before we uh, take a look, uh, as we take a, a, a little break from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, today um, I have a sermon to share with you in relation to the three triumphal entries of the king. Uh, as we see Palm Sunday uh, as one of those entries, uh, as we take a look at the life of Christ, uh, the incarnation, Christ uh, with us, God with us. And so let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you for uh, another day uh, to, to rise, to uh, join together in uh, one voice uh, to proclaim who you are. Uh, and what a, a beautiful day to do so as we consider Palm Sunday. And uh, even if uh, much of the crowd did not understand what they were communicating because uh, they only saw your son as someone who was going to free them from the oppression of Rome, uh, Father, we can look back on that uh, event and realize that Jesus Christ came uh, for a particular purpose. Uh, he came for our greatest need, and that is not to be freed from uh, physical harm or oppression of others, um, but to uh, be born again spiritually, uh, to have our sins forgiven, for us to uh, know you, to be able to experience uh, forgiveness, and uh, one day uh, eternal life as we spend eternity with you, all because of what your son accomplished uh, as we uh, look back uh, on this particular week, uh, which is uh, called Holy Week, uh, and it's holy because uh, your son is holy. Uh, he lived that sinless, perfect life uh, so that through his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, we can have newness of life. And so, Father, may we see that this morning as we look at these triumphal entries, uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, and if you do, um, uh, today you're going to be turning quite a few places uh, as we take a look uh, at uh, these three triumphal entries of the King, because uh, I thought as... Uh, it was Palm Sunday that uh, the, the portion of, you know, Ephesians that we would have been in uh, didn't quite fit. Uh, and so um, this past week, um, just thinking about the actual triumphal entry into Jerusalem as Palm Sunday made me think about uh, really the Son of God making his entrance into the creation, um, the creator um, stepping down um, from his rightful place as the uh, sovereign over all. Uh, and so I'd like to take a look at those this morning because um, there are things that we can glean from these triumphal entries. Um, it's not something that we should just, you know, necessarily focus on one aspect, but for us to see that Jesus Christ came for a particular purpose. Uh, and we're going to um, see that and also one that is yet to happen. Uh, as we look at Christ's second coming uh, this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up uh, to the Old Testament book of Isaiah as we take a look at the Creator's triumphal entry into creation itself. Uh, and this would be something that we would obviously take a look at during Christmas time, but this marks the first triumphal entry uh, of the Son of God into time. Uh, where he has taken on flesh to dwell among us, to live a perfect, 
holy, righteous life. Uh, and I'd like to take a look at uh, this being prophesied in the Old Testament uh, and see the responses of those when he actually stepped into what we would see now as history. Uh, and so Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 uh, and this prophecy, along with the other one we're going to take a look at in just a moment in Micah chapter 5, you need to understand are 700 years prior to their actual fulfillment. Now, we're not talking seven hours, which if, if, even if I could predict something seven hours from now, that would be pretty amazing. I have no control to be able to predict anything. Seven hours, seven days, seven months, seven years, seven decades, even seven millennia. I have no capacity within myself to be able to do this, but yet God, as he spoke through prophets of old, his mouthpieces to his people and really to the world, prophesied this about the creator's triumphal entry into creation. It says there in verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So not a sign of men. God himself is going to give the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, 700 years prior, the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming what God himself gave to the prophet to set the stage for what would happen past, well, any of our lifetimes. If we live to 100 years old, we're doing probably quite well. Uh, maybe, maybe at age 100, I won't say that. If I even live to 80, let alone 100. This was prophesied to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. We'll turn over to Micah chapter 5. Again, a contemporary uh, again, 700 years prior to the fulfillment that we read in the two New Testament accounts in Matthew and Luke, but Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old from ancient days. Well, who is it that is from old and from of ancient days? None other than the eternal God of all, and in particular, the Son of God himself. Stepping out of eternity into time, and as the scriptures tell us, in the fullness of time, would step forth, and this prophecy being fulfilled, and this First triumphal entry into creation, as you're going to see as we turn to the New Testament, as we see the fulfillment and the responses to this coming, is really a small cell of people. There's not very many people that have the opportunity to see the, the Son of God coming into history. Uh, and so let's turn over to Matthew chapter 1. As we see this hand-picked group of people that are going to experience this beautiful coming, the entrance of the creator into the creation itself. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. 
And notice their responses as we read this, because in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and following, is coming on the heels of Joseph having a dream where he was going to understand exactly what God was doing, because he did not have all the information he needed in order to make a, a better judgment. And so after the angel uh, had uh, shown him through a dream what he needed to do in relation to Mary and the fact that this was God's working, that Mary was not unfaithful to Joseph, but instead uh, the spirit of, of the living God came upon Mary so that the baby would be uh, from God, not through the sinful line of Adam. I know it's excruciating, but you'll have to <laughs> hold in there just a little longer. It says there in verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep. Now, you have to, to picture this because sometimes when we find something that we read in the word of God and it's something that maybe we don't want to hear or something that we're familiar with that really we know what it says but don't want to do what it says, it's at that crucial moment that we have the ability to either obey or disobey to make a, a good biblical informed decision or do it out of our own selfish intentions. But notice what Joseph does when he wakes from the sleep after he is told everything that God is doing as the Son of God is going to be stepping into the creation itself. And you should underline these words. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So what is really the, the first response that we see here from Joseph uh, as the, the angel came uh, and in this dream, obedience. Obedience to the fact that God was doing something miraculous, that there was going to be a triumphal entry of the God-man into time itself. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here we have a response of obedience to this coming triumphal entry. Well, uh, you can either keep your finger in Matthew 1, because we're going to go to Matthew 2, but not until we see Luke chapter 2. So flip over to Luke chapter 2 as we look at another response and fulfillment of these two prophecies out of Isaiah and Micah. Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and again, this is in response, in, uh, you know, re, not reaction, but actually in proclamation of what is taking place. It says in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel that communicated uh, to the shepherds what was happening, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the very angels of heaven, a multitude of them are proclaiming that the Son of God is coming for a particular purpose. He is making a triumphal entry with a particular thing in mind. And because he is the Son of God, he is worthy of all glory. He is worthy to be praised in the highest. And as we sung this morning, and we'll see in a few moments, that to have rings you know, go forth saying, Hosanna, Son of David. Glory to God in the highest, because he is the Son of God. He is not just a mere man. 
He is not created. He is the eternal God of all. Then look down at verses 19 and 20. As these shepherds come and they see with their own eyes what was testified to them by the angel and by this heavenly host, notice what Mary's response is. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You know, God had a special plan for Mary as she is part of this triumphal entry, the focus not being on her, but on the Son of God taking on flesh. And verse 20 says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it was, has been told them. See, the Son of God came into time and shook the world. Even though there was only a very small audience that was part of this glorious entering in, as the, the Son of God, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, who is the sovereign God of all, takes on flesh to dwell among us, to live the only righteous life ever lived. So that through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we could have forgiveness. We could be made right with God. So there should be praise going forth. Even though it's, it's in its infancy state here, See, the Son of God is taking on flesh, but is going to have a ripple effect through time itself. Because this is God's plan from before the beginning of the world itself. Because remember, as we've been reading and studying in Ephesians, that you know, salvation belongs to God. It's His sovereign plan from before the foundation of the world. And here we see it as this triumphal entry into creation. And then notice in Matthew chapter 2, because there are good responses to this triumphal entry, and then there are also those responses that are not God-glorifying at all. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I could just stop there. It would be great not to include what the, the remainder is, but we have these wise men that have traveled from afar to come and to worship the king of kings and lord of lords. But notice what it says in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Because Jerusalem knew how crude, how rude, how awful a ruler, how jealous a ruler Herod was. So much so that if we would continue to read in the account, we know that Herod became so jealous of this baby in the manger unbeknownst to him that this is the Son of God who's making his triumphal entry into time, is so afraid of this baby, shows you the magnitude of what happens when the Son of God takes on flesh. So much so that in his jealousy, he had every child two years of age and under massacred in the streets. 
because he did not want anyone to take glory away from himself. And his end, as we read, uh, was not a pleasant one. But see, there are responses to this triumphal entry. So what is your response? If you had been there on that hill with the shepherds, if you would have you know, been Joseph, or if you would have been Mary, if you would have been the wise men, hopefully you're not Herod himself, or even the people of Jerusalem fearing for what Herod may do. See, the thing is, we all have a response because the Son of God has made his triumphal entry. The Creator has taken on flesh to dwell amongst his creation, to reveal himself to the world. And that is what I see as the first triumphal entry of the King. Because even though Jesus was a baby to begin with, he was still the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because he was still the Son of God. He never ceased being the Son of God when he took on flesh. But then we come to another account that is at the very end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, what we call the triumphal entry, which will take us first to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Hopefully, I'll I'll give you a few moments to find that one. Um, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, because we see this second triumphal entry as the Messiah triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to see a transition here because everything that Jesus has been doing up to this point has really been keeping everything under very close, you know, uh, wraps so that it wouldn't go out too far. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is making a public proclamation as he takes and rides into the city of Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This being prophesied 500 years prior to its fulfillment, which we have in all four of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here is a proclamation by a prophet of God of what was yet to come 500 years from now. So everyone that would have heard that prophecy would most likely have not survived. So really this is a reading for those that would be alive at the fulfillment of that prophecy. Rejoice greatly, shout aloud, behold, your king is coming to you. Everything that had been prophesied about the coming Messiah is coming true. Even though it was written 500 years before, Jesus Christ made his first triumphal entry as a baby in a manger. Now he is making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming who he is, that he is the Messiah. So turn to Matthew chapter 21.
as we see the, the responses of the people. And see, this is a little bit larger of an audience because this is the city of Jerusalem that is witnessing this riding of a colt, the foal of a donkey, which would have been done in a time of peace by the king. He's not coming in on a white charging horse as if he's coming in for war. He's coming in on a humble beast of burden. But he's still the coming king. He is righteous, having salvation, and he is humble. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 6. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So notice that this audience has broadened in its scope. And when Jesus came in in the fashion that he did, it was a tremendous uproar in the city. So much so that people are saying, who is this? This wasn't on my calendar for this to happen today, if we were in modern times. See, the thing is, this is an interruption into the life of the city of Jerusalem. Because the Son of God is making his final way for the reason why in which he came, and that was to die on a cross. Hosanna meaning, save us, save us, we pray. And those cries were from those that believed that the Messiah was going to come and, and to free them from the oppression of Rome over them. They were only looking at it for, through physical eyes. We don't want to be you know, held under anyone. We want to be under the Lord. So save us, we pray. But really, that's not why Jesus came. Could Jesus have freed them from that oppression? Absolutely. But that wasn't part of God's will. That wasn't part of God's plan from the beginning. He was coming in on a donkey showing that he is the king, but humble, a servant willing to give his life. In Mark chapter 11, verse 10, it says, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So we have a, a praise of, Save us, we pray, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have, Blessed is the coming kingdom. Well, if it is the kingdom of God himself, then it is a blessed kingdom. Because it will be a kingdom, as it was prophesied, that would be righteous and actually having salvation. Not the salvation that the people were hoping for, but the salvation that they truly and desperately needed. In Luke chapter 19, verses 38 and 40, or through 40, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We'll see again, that cult represented a time of peace as the king rode in. But see, this is not the peace that they are looking for. This is peace with God, being made right with God. 
because Jesus was offering himself as that mediator, as that sacrifice, as that once for all, as the Lamb of God came into that city that day. Notice what it says in verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because the Son of God has made a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem that is a way that has been prepared for him to fulfill what he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit as part of their will from before the foundation of the world would complete, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And these cries of Hosanna, blessed is the king, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, you know, invoking heaven's blessing because they thought they were going to be freed from a political, physical oppression. But Jesus came to save the lost. That's what he came to seek and save. Not lost because they didn't know where they were. Lost because they were in opposition, enemies of God, because they had broken God's law. In John chapter 12, verse 16, it says there that his disciples did not understand these things at first. So you wonder, well, how can the disciples not understand? Jesus has been with them. He's been teaching them. But everything he proclaimed, that the Son of Man would die and be buried and rise again was something that until, it says, as the text goes on in verse 16, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in other words, the, the, the puzzle was finally complete. They, they, they were able to see in full what Jesus had done after he was glorified, after he ascended into heaven. But not while he was there, and the people did not understand because they were looking for something else. They were so concerned about what they believed they needed that they couldn't see why the Son of God stepped into, into time itself and is making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem in John chapter 12, that uh, same chapter in verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So in other words, everything that the Pharisees had tried to do and to try and reel in their control, to reel in the people, for them to do what they said was right before God, which was a self-righteousness, what Jesus said is not what will make you right with God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because Jesus had the ability to give us a righteousness not our own. Because if we could be righteous on our own, if we could do enough good, and good being in quotes, that God would accept us. Jesus is saying, no, you cannot do enough good. Even your best is filthiness to me. See, the Messiah triumphantly entered into Jerusalem to proclaim that he is the Son of God, that he is the rightful king, that he is the only one who can save. See, nothing was going to stop the humble king of righteousness and salvation, not even the religious leaders, not even a Roman cross, 
not even physical death, not even three days' time in a tomb, not even a grave, a stone, sin or Satan himself was going to stop the triumphal entry of the Son of God as he proclaimed salvation, as he proclaimed repentance. That was triumphal entry number two. And the third one that I'm going to share with you is coming out of the book of Revelation chapter one. So I'll have you turn there. Because the creator triumphantly entered into creation through his birth as Emmanuel, God with us. He entered as the Messiah into Jerusalem in his second triumphal entry. The third is one that we have not experienced yet, something that is yet to come. Revelation chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want you to know just by way of context that this letter that John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, which would be modern Turkey today, uh, were you know, having a difficult time of their own. If you read the letters to the churches, you'll understand why, but we're not going to take the time to do that. But know this, that what John is doing is proclaiming hope. He is proclaiming an encouraging word in this final book of what we know as the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Begins in verse 4 of chapter 1, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And if he would permit me, I'd like to personalize that. How about John to Ellington Baptist Church in the United States of America? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I could just say amen, hallelujah, let's pray. But let me unpack it just a little bit for you. Let me show you why, as we look at the Alpha and Omega's return in glory or glorious return, however you want to say it, is important for us because we are looking forward to that. It's something that has been prophesied that we're still waiting for. Notice there that at the beginning... The whole trinity is represented. As you take a look, it says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Speaking to the God, the Father's eternality, the fact that he has uh, no beginning, no end, that he is the eternal God of all. Then it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit himself. Now, there's not seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. And the way to understand this takes us back actually to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where what this is speaking to here is the fullness of the Spirit. 
It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this is speaking actually of Christ's coming. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven things representing seven aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Father speaking to his eternality, the Spirit speaking to his fullness, and then Jesus Christ, the rightful place as Savior and King. Listen to that. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So in other words, Jesus never gave up. He did not give in. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, which represented the the Roman, you know, results of breaking Roman law to be the most torturous, the most painful, the most agonizing, the most humiliating death there is. That's what the Son of God, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, did when he stepped down into history, when he stepped down through the manger, as he stepped into the city of Jerusalem, and as we await his coming return. He was faithful to the end. He is the firstborn of the dead. Now, there were others that were resurrected from the dead who then again died prior to Jesus. He is the firstborn from the dead because he is the one who has the final victory over sin and death. And his resurrection was a complete resurrection. Jesus Christ is not going to die again. Jesus Christ does not need to go to the cross again. Jesus is not on the cross He was taken down from the cross. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, just as he laid down his life, he took it up again. As the Father, with his stamp of approval on his sacrifice, raised him from the dead. He is ruler of the kings on earth. So there is no earthly king. So think of every earthly ruler you want to today. Because it was true when this was penned by John on the Isle of Patmos. It is true to us in Ellington, Connecticut in 2023 that Jesus Christ is ruler of the kings on earth because no one is in power without the permission of God himself. Sometimes God gives rulers to people that they deserve. Sometimes God gives rulers to judge people. Sometimes God gives rulers that are kind and benevolent rulers. But know this, that there has never been a ruler in the created universe that has been above God, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit. And that's why it says here that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. No one tells God what to do. God tells them this is how it is. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Hallelujah. Because if that was not the case, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are headed for a godless eternity in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where you will receive the just reward, the just wages for your sin before a holy God. 
But because of Christ, because of what he accomplished on Calvary, because of faith and trust in him, he has made us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. So in other words, he is the mediator. He is the one who has made it possible for us to have a righteousness not our own so that we can be in the presence of Almighty God, the one who is and was and is to come. That should move you, that should drive you to sing hallelujah, hosanna in the highest. God, come and be who you are. Let the world see who you are. As it finishes to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. What a glorious doxology to the triune God. But it doesn't stop there because this is where this third triumphal entry begins. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. Notice it's in the present tense. He is coming. Jesus is coming right now. Now, you might be saying, well, hasn't he been coming right now long enough? That's for God to decide, not me. In the meantime, I know that the fact that he has not stepped back here on earth means that his long-suffering is still being exercised, that he's still being merciful and gracious to those who do not deserve, which was what I was once before I trusted Christ And notice he's coming with the clouds. So in other words, a picture of the radiance of his glory and all his majesty, showing that he is the God over all of creation. And then something very, very beautiful. Every eye will see him. So not a small select group, not the city of Jerusalem. The whole world is going to know when the, the, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords returns. Every eye will see him. What an audience. And what will the responses be from that audience? Well, you would think that if they could see, if if God only showed himself that everyone on this planet would repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice it goes on to say, even those who pierced him, which is referencing the Jews, And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So everybody else, all the Gentile nations. And notice that they're going to wail. Some are going to repent, but most are not. Most in the hardness of the heart and the deadness of their heart are still going to reject God even as the Son of God comes in all of his glory. Even though they can see it with their own eyes, their spiritual death there. They want nothing to do with him. It will be hardness of heart. They're going to wail because they know their doom is coming. And I love what John does here, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit. He gives his, I don't know if you want to call it, and I hate to use the word two cents, but nothing else is coming to mind. He gives his assessment of what is going on here, what he is penning. He says, Even so, amen. So this is a very strong affirmative in the Greek. So in other words, he's saying, yes, so be it. That the Son of God come in all of his glory. As one of the apostles proclaiming 
that salvation to the ends of the earth. And then we see three phrases that close out this text. In verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which speaks to the omniscience of God. He is the first and last letter of the alphabet. He is the knowledge from A to Z, or Alpha to Omega. There's nothing that God does not know. There is no detail that's going to slip his gaze. There is not someone that's going to slip their way into heaven because they were good enough. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who is and was and who is to come. This speaks again, as you notice, it's kind of sandwiched there. That was at the beginning in reference to the Father, which is true about the Son, which is true about the Holy Spirit, that it is the eternal God of all. But also his transcendence, if I can say the word, which means that he exists above and independent of his creation, that he is unknown and unsearchable, yet he has revealed himself because the Son of God has made those triumphal entries. As a baby in the manger, as a king coming into Jerusalem, and one day for the whole stage of the world to see the creator God who is the Almighty, which speaks to God's omnipotence. He is all-powerful. He answers to no one. He accomplishes all his good pleasure, as the scripture tells us. So how should this inform our lives? We've basically looked at Christ's birth, his triumphal entry, which would end in his death as those Cries of Hosanna turn into crucify him, crucify him to the time at which he is going to come for the whole world to see. Well, and I completely lost my my PowerPoint there. Here we go. Herod tried to stop the creator's triumphal entry into the creation by having every child two years and under killed. The crowds in Jerusalem tried to quench the Messiah's triumphal entry into Jerusalem with rallying cries days later with crucify him, crucify him. But nothing, and I repeat, nothing can and nothing will stop the Alpha and Omega's return in glory. Jesus is coming. So I close with the lyrics to his song. All of creation, all of the earth, make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner, wake up the saint, let every nation shout of your fame. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom will be the church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we sing, even so, Lord Jesus, come. There will be justice All will be new, your name forever, faithful and true. Jesus is coming again. Like a bride waiting for her groom will be the church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we sing, even so, Lord Jesus, come. So we wait, we wait for you. God, we wait, you're coming soon. So we can have our own songs of praise and hallelujah because there is a triumphal entry yet coming. 
that may come any moment because it is an imminent return. Jesus is coming. The question, are you going to be part of that church, that bride that is ready for the coming of the king? Or will you be like those that in different aspects of the coming of the king into time through the manger and through his entrance into the city of Jerusalem will say, hmm, I hope it's not that. I hope you're ready to receive the king. And even if we don't see that in our lifetime, there's a day when you're going to have that faith made sight where you're going to be in the presence of the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is faithful and true, the one who loved you, freed you from your sins by his blood. Let's bow for a closing word of prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan uh, to bring into this world your Son, the eternal God of all, so that we may know who you are, so that we would no longer be told the lie, that we would no longer believe that we just need to be good enough in our own strength but instead that we need a righteousness not our own. We need forgiveness from the only one who can give forgiveness, the only one who is worthy to proclaim how salvation is uh, accomplished, and that is through your Son and Him alone. We cannot save ourselves. Even if given all of eternity, we would still fall short of your glory. And so, Father, help us to see these triumphal entries. May you fill our hearts with joy. May there be a song rising in our hearts and souls as we think about the beginning of this holy week. Uh, and as uh, in somewhat in ignorance, the, the people of Jerusalem were saying, Hosanna, save us, we pray. Lord, we can say that you have already saved us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just wait for your glorious return through him. And so, Father, we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.